we're going to do a little bit of looking at the book and in terms of its um, how you can use it. So this is kind of a practical little deal. There is, in the front of your Bible, and, and those of you who have bought one recently, you know that you know, you, you're trying to find the kind of Bible that you like. And we have been currently using the New Living Translation, the, uh, which is a recent version of things. came out first in 96. So in the very front of your Bible, before the, list, the contents listing, there's all that small print and all that stuff in there will tell you that that Bible or whichever one you have, and the one I'm looking at, it's copyrighted 96 is the first one of these that came out. A follow-up to that, there was some changes in 2004 and again in 2007. So that's what they're calling the uh, New Living Translation 2. So if you're looking at at translations, you're trying to see most of them that are going to be out there are going to be the updated version anyway. But if you're looking for some, and you probably noticed when we put different verses up, and sometimes it'll list it and say NLT2, so that's that just references the latest version of all of that. So they've taken the Hebrew, it was written originally, the Old Testament, in Hebrew and Aramaic. So those two languages and Greek in New Testament. So we've got three languages involved, and those have been translated, and, and that's part of why the changes show up. And when they confirm certain verses, certain words, they're looking at the best manuscript evidence that they have. So they, when there's new evidence of more manuscripts or older manuscripts, because sometimes it's old, it's really old. We just looked at some at the Bible Museum in, in D.C. And, the, and these, these are fragments and they're trying to piece them together like a puzzle and then read them and translate them. And some of them... they. Well, they're two, 3,000 years old. So you've got some smudges, and so sometimes they're trying to get the letter right, and so then they find another copy or a bunch of other copies in a jar. We were looking at those jars from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and they have to compare those, and when they do, they go, well, this one's better. Now we have more of these, and it shows that that letter or that word is this. So it's better than... Well, if you go back to the King James, they did a great job. They used the Old Testament was a Masoretic text. They had some some Greek texts that were kind of newly found even at that point. And they did a great job for 1611. Today, we have, since 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have a mound of manuscript evidence that's come since then. Other codex, other... Uh, scrolls that have been found, and so you put all of that together to compare and then find out what is the best translation, best evidence for this particular book. That's how we get there. So when you see those changes, it doesn't mean the Bible changed. It just means that they found better evidence, a better way of um, translating that word or maybe a phrase or the end of a uh, sometimes an entire uh, paragraph or the end of, like the end of Mark, they've had to, you'll, you can read some notes around it, and go, these weren't found in some of the manuscripts, and they just note, this is, is highly, you know, we're saying it's, it's the real deal, but we don't have the manuscript evidence to just nail it on this one. And that's okay. You know, you think, you think you've kept something going for 3,000 years, that's pretty good. That many cultures, that many times this thing's been handwritten, all those things. Pretty amazing. So, you have in your contents a list of uh, the books. And these, this list is the Protestant version of this. A little different than the Catholic, a little different than the Coptic, a little different than the list that you'll find in, uh, in for the Old Testament, for the Hebrew Bible. They... They broke these down differently. So that is not a God-given list, just saying. It's a, the, the list is given in a, in a way that made sense. So that's how these things are ordered, but it helps to know 
what they what they represent and how all this fits together. So you know about Genesis, you know about Revelation. It's probably the stuff in between that's a little more challenging. So that's you know what kind of look at how that's laid out. There there's the first eleven chapters of Genesis lays out the general picture of creation and and it's the the creation of the world the universe uh space time material everything all of that happens in chap- chapters 1 through 11 the it's also the beginning of narrowing things down we've covered the three rebellions that are included in there but there's also it's the beginning of the people of faith so we're starting with a, a group with Eden and then the chaos and the breakdown from the Garden of Eden and separation from God and then what God does to put all that stuff back together. We, and we start over with a new world, so the, the great flood. We start over with a new family because Babel, the, gener- or the peoples of the world said, ah, we, we want different gods and they scattered. And or they wanted to control God, and then they get scattered and got other gods. So that's just all the way through chapter 11, at which point God says, I'm going to pick a family, and that's going to be my family, and I'm going to start with this guy, Abraham, Abram to start with, and and he's old, and his old wife, and they can't have children. I'm going to start with them, and then we'll start a new family out of that. Because it's miraculous. You go, well, that's kind of cool. Because who would choose to do something that crazy? So that's so the first 11 chapters gives us that. Then we start with chapter 12, which is when God gives the promise to Abraham. And first part of 12 is, is hey, I'm calling you out of this land. Come follow me. I'll show you where I want you to go. And I'm going to give you some kids. I ain't going to work. But anyway, here we go. We're going to follow you. And he does. So 12 is the beginning of the new thing. So we're following, and as we're reading through this, the Old Testament, that story of that family on the way to God's deliverer, which he talks about in Genesis 3.15. But it's going to come later through this family and so we start with that. So Genesis 1 through 11 gives, lays down the reason for these things and the change and the new thing and the new family. Then we're, bam, we're off Genesis 12. And we get Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the story of Joseph, the story of the people in, Israel, in Egypt, and then Exodus. So that's, then we're into the second book. So the first five books, when you look through there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are the books called the books of Moses. It can be uh, referred to as the Pentateuch, which means five books. So those first five books, and there's certain groups who will choose, they just live off of the law, and that's, what, and that's also going to refer to those first five books. This, for the Samaritan Jews, they or the Samaritan uh, Israelites, they are still focused on the law, so the first five books. And some of what happens with some of the super orthodox groups today and in the, in the Jewish tribes are really focused on the law, the first five books. So when you go from the from there, then you get into some books of history, and it's the writings, it's the telling the story of how God did this thing as he's bringing the family out of Egypt, how he's establishing them in the land of promise. And when he does that, that's when you get to the book of Joshua, and you begin to work your way through uh, Joshua's victory, judges as everything's falling apart because everybody's doing what's right in their own minds, and so they're they're not listening to God. They wind up chasing other ones. He has to keep sending judges and, and saving them over and over again. And included in that is the story of Ruth. So we get the whole Moabite thing uh, brought in and, and her tremendous story, which becomes blended in. So that's, these are historical books, also called the writings. So 
Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles. And, and all of those are the history of the kings, the history of the, of the land, the history of, well, Samuel the prophet. And then he chooses the first king, Saul, second king, David. And then he, you know, Samuel's out of the picture. And we have other prophets who, who are coming alive, coming, coming on board. Then it's the kings, you know, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Most of them didn't. And it's just the kingdom splits and with Solomon's son and to the northern tribes and the southern tribes. So northern tribes, ten tribes in the north called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Jacob. The southern tribes, two of them, Judah, Benjamin and Judah, but normally called Judah, and that's why we call them Jews. It's the southern group. But the ten in the north wind up following other gods. God keeps telling them, come back. He sends prophets. You get you know, a whole mess of them. Isaiah's up there. You get, you get uh, the story of Elijah. That's happening up there with Ahab. And all of those stories are about getting the people to follow the one true God as opposed to all the other gods that are around, following the culture that's around them. And he keeps calling them back. And trying to protect them spiritually, politically, and environmentally. Because remember, he turns off the rain three and a half years. So he controls all of it. And he's trying to get them back to recognize him. And that story is, is unfolding in, in those books as it builds up. Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of after they, they come back from exile. That's the southern tribes, the southern two. And they're coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. So they're going to reinstate the whole system, the whole sacrificial system. And it's there that we have the, the buildup of uh, what winds up being Herod's temple, the second temple period. And during that time, God is still at work. He's still doing amazing things. But it's the Greeks come in, so there's a Greek influence and then the Romans. Oh boy. So they've got, those guys are influencing them. Their cultures are influencing them. Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra's a, a priest. Nehemiah is a political leader who's, who's listening to the Lord and, and helps them build, rebuild the city. Ezra is there to get them back to start on the temple. So they do get all that going. Esther is a story that's happening while they're, they're over in, Persia scattered, so they're still far away from home. And her story is about how the the uh, people are saved, delivered by you know, her her being the queen and and being in a position of influence because God placed her there. So His sovereignty is at work, and that's a great story. And isn't that the, that's the new one over at Sight and Sound Theater in Branson, right? So go. The last one was really good, but this that'd be a good story. Anyway, that's that's coming up. Um, Job is under the poetic books, so it's going to be a, it, it's connected with Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. All of those are are they're written not not so much in our language, but poetic in in a poetic manner and convey. Uh, truth. So you read Proverbs and you see couplets, and it'll have one line followed by a second that compares, contrasts, somehow ties together. Sometimes they'll they'll uh, the Psalms will have the Hebrew alphabet, like Psalm one nineteen. It's Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalit. It's the A B C D of the Hebrew alphabet all the way through it. Every one of those lines is beginning that way. We don't do it in English, so you don't know that it's there, but it's, it's uh, written. Uh, these are very creative and, and really uh, meaningful, the way that these things have been compiled. You just can't always translate it equally. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom literature, and seems like he's just on this downer vibe, but you know, Solomon kind of walked away from the Lord. But he winds up in 12 going, oh, after I think about everything, 
I'm the wisest guy on earth because I blew it a lot. He doesn't include that part. But seek the Lord with everything you got. Just that really will, will make a difference. So you go, yeah, you got there, buddy. It took you a while. Uh, Song of Songs also in there. Prophets are the last part in our English uh, Bible and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. And those are, those are speaking to certain groups. So the, like Isaiah is speaking to the, it applies to everybody, but it, it's often specific to somebody in the north. So the ten tribes in the north, and y'all don't make a deal with Egypt. And so if you don't know the politics of what's going on right there, you're reading through this, it may not, it may not stand out as, as meaningful as it maybe should. Just go, God's saying, don't, don't make a deal with Pharaoh down there in the south because you're afraid of what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And you think if you make a deal down there, he's going to come up and protect you. And he's going, he won't. And, and don't listen to Moab. I mean, just, just different things. You just don't do it. You go, well, that you know, has nothing to do with me because I'm having my quiet time and I just need it to be specific for my day and my troubles and my problems. And he's going, well, to start with, I didn't write this specifically to you. This is written to these people during this time. What would be the application? Maybe look at our political situation because he's also talking about the gods that represent these different or are influencing these different nations. Maybe the application has more to do with, I need to look at who are we making deals with? Should we be making a really, signing some kind of a treaty with China so we can protect ourselves from Russia? Or Russia to, and God's going, or if you were in Europe, they're, they're in trouble for this winter because they made a deal with Russia to get their natural gas from that place. And all they have to do is turn off the spigot, and Europe freezes. So what happens when, you, when Russia says, you know, I, I want you guys to back us and not so much somebody that we invade? And you go, you know, we're not in such a big rush to help because you turned off the, you know, we're cold. Don't sign the deal. So how do we do, how do we learn not to make the deals that are going to get us in something upside down. And he's just giving us example after example of trust the Lord, get close to him, listen. Don't listen to all the advisors that come and give you all this other insight and direction and all that kind of, uh, it'll get you in big trouble. So some of them are for, some of these prophets are for the north, some of them for the south. And some of them are uh, very, well, the major ones, the big ones, we'll do this real quick. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the subset there of Jeremiah's Lamentations, just a short little book. And Ezekiel, Daniel, those, those are the bigger ones. And so they, become, they are called the major prophets, maybe labeled that way in your table of contents. And the others are called minor prophets, not because they are less important, because they have really cool stuff to say, but they're just short. They're shorter than than those others. The scroll uh, for Isaiah, and this Dead Sea Scroll, at the Museum of the Bible, they had taken the one from Dead from the Dead Sea Scrolls and had images where they'd taken pictures of it, and then they had set it up with these giant, I don't even know, those weren't posters, they were they were images in glass, but they wrapped around in this room. It's so big. <laughs> but it's the real deal from the Dead Sea Scrolls, handwritten. So this would have been pre-Jesus, 150 years. And then all just wrapped, and you think, how many scrolls they're writing it? Rolling it up, and then, oh, that was it was cool to see. But those are big, and yeah, you 
Okay, scrolls, roll them up, right? So it's a big length of papyrus, or it's an animal skin that they've laid out. So it's, it's what they've written this all on. And each one of those is in a segment and then sewn to the next one, sewn to the next one, and then they roll them up and roll it from both ends so they bring it together. The codex, when they came up with that, and that was new technology in Jesus' time. So this is like this is a, an improvement. So they still handwriting, transcribing, all, writing all this down. They cut it, the scroll, into pages <laughs> like that. That's where the books came from. It's called a codex. So they just did that and then bound the end of it. So that's how we wound up with these. But also, technology. Look, you can write on this side and that side. Holy moly, look, and then we bind it together, and it only this big now, instead of <laughs> 40. It's like a book. Yeah, and then it's a book. Yeah. Yeah, and they had the clay tablets and things like Hammurabi, or, you know, so all the other writings, and you go, those are heavy. Yeah, carry those around. The scrolls are long, and then they came up with that, and you go, that's, that's, we're still using it. That was clever. Now we have them, you know, on our phone, so it's, we, we, and we print the, and then we, they had the Gutenberg Bible there, too, or that was at the Library of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. But they showed how they made, how they printed with it at the Museum of the Bible. But just coming up with printing, all of those technical advances helped get this out. So that that's a uh, that's a bunch of stuff. So about Jesus. So let's do some some stuff on in this way. So, oh yeah, before you get there in your Bible, there's going to be a list of who helped translate. So these guys work often they're at different colleges or seminaries, often under a team leader. And then they, they guide them as they go. This has been going on since way back. So when, uh, when the Bible was changed, when most of the people had learned Greek, when, when uh, the, the Greeks invaded uh, 300 B.C., came through Egypt and the Middle East and all over, and people started speaking Greek, and Greek culture became a huge thing under Alexander's invasion. The uh, Jews, many of them that were in different cities like Alexandria, Egypt, didn't speak or read Hebrew as much as they did before. And they've also been hauled away and come back, and so you know they've lost touch with their original language. So they decided, well, let's translate this the, the scriptures into a language they can understand, so let's do it into Greek. So the Bible was translated into Greek in Alexandria, and it's called the Septuagint, which means there were 70 translators. So it has a team leader. We don't know his name. We'll call him Henry. Henry helped get the group together, and then they worked to translate from the Hebrew to the Greek so that people could understand it. It's helpful for us because this was done 150, 200 years before Jesus comes on the scene. And we've got a copy of Scripture. That, because we're accused at times, Christians or, or modern Jews, y'all just making that up. That, you wrote that after the fact, after Jesus did this. That prophecy, you're saying that was prophetic and, and then he fulfilled it. No, if you just wrote it in that way later, you go, we have copies of things translated way before they couldn't have known. And so, and the Septuagint's out there. And that, if, if you're familiar with the Michael Heiser teachings, he references it a lot because the, by the time we're reading the New Testament and they're quoting Old Testament passages, most of the time they're quoting it from the Greek Septuagint, not the Hebrew Bible. Paul would have read all of them. I mean, he, he could do Hebrew because that's his training was, you know, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. He, he, he could do all that. But everybody else is pretty much Greek with some Hebrew for worship time. But they, they were reading from 
the Greek Septuagint and quoting from the Greek Septuagint. So those translations made a huge difference in how we read Old Testament passages in the New Testament. That's just an aside. Okay, so here's that list. So you get these all these guys, and you can look at the front of your Bible, and sometimes you can go through there and go, man, that's... If you know something about some of these schools, and you're going, uh, that's great. That's a good one. And then sometimes you can get, some depends on which Bible you get, and you read through it, and you go, well, that's... The guy may be good at the language, but he's not so good on... He's kind of a flaky theologian guy. And so it's good to know. You can look there and go, where did they get... You know, who did this one? What, what book? Because this breaks it down into Genesis, Alan Ross, and Gordon Wenham. Did that work? Uh, Daniel Block, Robert Bergen for Exodus. I mean, you just go through and just... And some of them you can look up. R.K. Harrison down there on Numbers. I mean, some of these guys are just amazing. Or Actually, the guys in, who did this work were really good. So it's a good team. But just giving you a heads up, all that's listed in there. So, okay, so the Jesus part of this. Right at the beginning... Genesis chapter 1, we get this little thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's pretty, I remember that. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Let there be light and all of these things start happening. All right, we're jumping over to... John chapter 1. It's like all the way to the New Testament. And see what he has to say about this stuff. Wow, there it is. First part. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Did you hear that? Must be something to this. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. Huh. This kind of echoes what's unfolding in Genesis 1, but that's Jesus. Who is that? Let's go over to Genesis. I think 18. Let's see what this one. Over in Genesis 18, we've got Abraham. This is now it's we're zeroing in on his family and what's happening with him and and how this is developing, how the family that God has chosen is starting to develop. So we pick this up in 18.1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue your journey. All right. So he's running around and you know tells Sarah to get out the good stuff, the, the good flour and lots of it. And so they eat. They give him some information. But we've got uh, an ongoing relationship here because uh, this is when the Lord tells him that he's going to have his son and Sarah laughs. Of course, that's where you get the whole Isaac name. And uh, he's going, I'm too old. Can't, you know, that's not how. It, and the Lord says in 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return this time next year and Sarah will have a son. So who is that? Well, this is Jesus before he becomes incarnated, before Bethlehem. So he's showing up. Here's the Lord. He's He's appearing. He's, he's at creation. He's created everything. He's given life. Now he's coming to visit the family. And he's saying, here's the impossible thing. 
they're too old, you can't have children, you've never had children, now you're going to, and she's going, no, that day passed. And he goes, no, that's how I do things. I want to do what's impossible, make possible what's impossible, and you are going to have a child, and in a year I'll, I'll be back. Any lessons in there for us? Just that? Go, well, that just doesn't happen. That's impossible. It has to fit reason. It has to be rational. It has to fit my thinking of how these things work. And every time we do that, laughing like Sarah did, the Lord's going, what? I am the Lord of the impossible. And Jesus just showed up. Most of the time we read through that and it kind of pass over and go, no, Jesus just showed up. The second person of the Trinity, God, has shown up had a big dinner, sat under the tree, talked to Abraham, had to deal with Sarah laughing. Of course, he knows she's laughing off in the tent. She thinks she's hidden. Not so much. We have God in it, in, in a pr- showing up as an individual. That's why we get this little hint later in Hebrews saying, you know, you may have entertained angels and been unaware that God has sent someone or has shown up himself and visited with you and said things that you didn't think were possible. So you just blow it off. You just, no, that can't happen. Those kind of things don't happen. They don't happen to me. They, I've never even heard of anybody having this kind of experience. Abraham could have said that. This is chapter 18. He's pretty early on. Not many people had heard of this. So just blow it off. Here is God who shows up. Then he gives him this information about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's about to go deal with them. And Abraham has a conversation with him about that whole situation. So that's next as as we're beginning to go through Genesis. Go to Joshua chapter 5. Jumping over a few of these. Because God has shown up. He's been in Exodus 20. He's been there and he's rattled things. He has uh, scared the people so bad they told Moses, we don't want to hear from God anymore. You just go up and talk to him because it's too scary to hear from him. And that's, you know, today people go, I, I just don't hear from God. I, don't, I just want to hear him if you just tell me. You know, those people didn't want to hear from him. And he wrote it down now. So we have some of this to look at. So we pick it up in in, uh, Joshua 5, uh, verse 13. Joshua is about to lead the people into the land of promise. God's brought them that far. Moses has died. They're ready to go in. And Joshua, now the new commander, he's in charge of this thing. And he's a little nervous. And he goes to look at Jericho, which is a defended fort, huge one at that time. And he's he's wondering, how in the world are we going to take this on? We've never fought anybody quite like that. 13, Joshua was near the town of Jericho. He looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with sword in hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. Where do we get that? Exodus chapter 3, 3.14. There's the whole interchange and the, 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 the bush that doesn't burn. And Moses is there. And when he approaches and God says, take off your sandals for your holy ground. He repeats that here. So we have an echo of that same. Who has he just met? And who was in the bush? And who's now connected with him? And what happens when uh, we read in John that the word has come? The word, what word? That was released, that was creating in Genesis at the beginning. That word. The one who showed up with Abraham. At the beginning of this family, the one who took them into the land of the promise, the captain of the Lord's army, that one, he's all through the scriptures. He is 
not pretending that he gets involved in humanity or the ways of human life or that he's unaware of what's happening between nations or the issues that are unfolding among people. He knows it all. He's involved in it all. And he is the one who was there from the get-go. So in answer to the Lord's questions, God is talking to Job in Job 38. And so he's talking to a man. And the question that he throws out is, so where were you when I created all this? Where were you when I hung the earth, suspended it in space? Where were you if you are so sharp? And Jesus can say, I did it. I was there. That's his answer. But to the rest of us, we're not that sharp. We don't know how this all works. And yet God shows up. He comes and speaks. And through the pages of scripture, he reveals himself. And he shows himself like this. He speaks. He gives guidance. He appears. Look at 1 Samuel 3. And these are familiar. These aren't like super hidden kind of passages, but just as a reminder. We've got Samuel who was born miraculously again to a woman who couldn't have a child, dedicates him to the Lord, brings him to the tabernacle. Eli's in charge. Eli's old priest who's blind by this point, and Samuel's kind of taking care of the chores. And we get this in 1 Samuel 3, 1. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare, and visions were quite uncommon. And then, you know, the rest of this. One night, Eli, almost blind by now, had gone to bed. And the lamp of of God had not gone out. And Samuel was sleeping in the tabernacle near the ark of God. When he hears, the Lord called out Samuel. And, of course, he runs. And we have that back and forth of what's going on. And finally, Eli realizes that this is the Lord. And verse 7, Samuel did not yet know the Lord because he had never had a message from the Lord before. So the Lord called a third time. And once more, Samuel got up and went to Eli Here I am. Did you call me? Eli realized it was the Lord who was calling the boy and tells Samuel, lie down. And if someone calls again, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel went back to bed and the Lord came and called us before. And Samuel said, speak, your servant is listening. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm about to do a shocking thing in Israel. So all of these things specific to Eli, the family, the priesthood, but also for the people of Israel, all of that. But he's also setting up Samuel to be the prophet who's going to, whose words will never fail, fall, as it says. And the Lord has shown up. So he's appeared to him. And uh, because the Lord came, appears, manifests himself, and is speaking to him in the tabernacle. So he has an interaction again, like Abraham did and Joshua did. And Jesus has appeared. And then we, we're following, we're just following a line through there. We've got a book filled with information written to people in their specific uh, scenarios, situations, with the, the culture and customs that all fit those times. And yet God intervenes, intercedes, and he comes into the middle of it. And interacts with these people. These aren't just voices. These aren't something just floating around in their heads. He is moving things. He is moving nations. He is moving peoples, people groups, and individuals along the way. And all of that takes us back to this Jesus that we talked about earlier in Colossians that we need to know and we need to get our roots deep into because he's the one. He's the one. He's been showing up since the get-go created all things. That's why John starts that way. Made it all. And he came, as we're told 
in John 1, he came, became flesh, and dwelt among us. And he manifested to us grace and truth. He's revealing all that was, all that is now, and all that's come to come. And it's all for our benefit. It requires us to spend some time going, wait a minute. There's more to this. It's not just a list of moral do's and don'ts. It's more than just a list of the things, the baggage that I picked up along the way. It's about this one who has revealed himself in Scripture and made himself known and available to us even today. And we have been blessed to have a copy of this. Unfortunately, not in scroll form. Take the codex, the book, and we get to enjoy getting to know him, getting to know him better, and allowing him to go to work in us, through us, and use us in the world that we live in. So we are truly blessed. Uh, you know, this part of the Bible, you said, man put that together by doing the major minor prophets, you know, the law, and stuff like that, the sequence of it. And then if you put them in chronological order, it doesn't follow. It follows and it changes and it goes down a little bit. But then you also hear, uh, I know we talked about it once before, that uh, Job's possibly the oldest book written in the Bible, the oldest book in the Bible. Yeah, that uh, uh, Job could be the oldest book, right? Yeah, it was written before Genesis was, that I guess God revealed it to Moses or whoever wrote it. Uh, so it would be the oldest book. Yeah. Probably, uh, Abraham lived a long time after the flood, so a lot of these people were still around. Probably Job and Abraham probably met his great-great-grandfather because they lived hundreds of years. So that was, yeah, you pass on stories like that, and you go, wow, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it'd, be, it'd be nice if, but we don't have that. The sequence that they came when they were, how old they were, the book when it was written, but uh, yeah, you can look that up. I, I didn't think that we had that. I thought like Job, and then who would be the next one? I don't know. But well, the book, the books of Moses are the ones a collection that we have. But yeah, in terms of uh, sequencing, th- and the reason I gave you the order I did, they're thematic. Those are themes, so it's organized by theme. You can look, and it has the next list in mind is alphabetical, so you can do that. It's not alphabetical according to the Hebrew or the Greek. It's alphabetical by English or chronological. I think a number of you guys are doing the chronological Bible this year, reading through. That's, that'll get you Job early on. Yeah. And yeah, it's, still, so. it's still down there a ways. I was looking at that a while ago. Yeah. But I just thought there's not one dated by how old it was written. You know, uh, like Moses, they could say that. Job was written X number of years before Jesus was born, and then the next book would be written here. I don't know. I don't know where to see that at. There, maybe there is a place. I don't know. Yeah, commentaries. <laughs> they have tons of those that that will have dates. Yeah, a variety, you know, variety of dates because yeah, nobody got them tattooed on them or anything. Yeah, or Hobe depending on where you live. Yeah, can be that way. Also, the, the numbering system didn't come along until like much later. So all of those verses, they didn't, yeah, none of those are part of the original. And you see periods and commas, and yeah, they didn't come in the early days either. It's a trick to read through some of those, and you're going... It would help if you had something extra. And we saw some of those old texts from Middle Ages, I think, were the ones that had a, a lot of this in their Bibles, and they had notations in them. Because these were kept in churches because people just they didn't own these. So in the churches, they had musical notations because the guy at the front, would, especially Orthodox churches, would chant them. So you chant through the Bible. And they had the musical notation of when you're up, down. They had little notes kind of with it and pause. And it's just kind of cool. So people have used them a lot of different ways. But a bunch of that stuff is 
just added to make it easier. You know, like making the book in that form, or if you've got one that's got little tabs and you can find your way through it faster. You know, just those little additions. Uh, not necessarily from heaven, but they do help. So the problem, the, the uh, man-made part that's a problem is not that these are printed on paper or they're bound like that, but what they do with the content. And then when they take these truths and make them less than or twist them in some fashion or make Jesus highly questionable... And you're going, who are we to question him? Look who he is. And if they really knew him, they'd fall down on their faces before him, but they don't, so they lash out. But any other questions, thoughts, things? I have a question, but uh, is there a good English version of the Septuagint that we can get hold of? Yeah, there's a, I think there's, I'm trying to think the one from, I can't think of his name. There's one online that's a PDF version, so it's freebie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can get it, but there's some, there's some fresher ones, and I just, you know, I'm not thinking of the names, but they're, they're available, and, and uh, yeah, the newer, you know, some of those are like early 1900s because now they're in the, there's no copywriting on them, and you can just, that's why they're a PDF, and you can get them for free. But these other ones are much easier to read, but they're going to be like this. You got to spend some money on them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And most of it's the same, but some even on the numbering, the verses will have a. If it's a sixteen in this one, it might be a seventeen in that one. So I mean, just some of that's different, but it's close. And, it, and they're just trying to make sense of it. So, yeah, it's not not too horrible. Well, the oldest uh, Hebrew they have not put in the, uh, the, top, the vowels. Is that right? No vowels. No vowels. No punctuation. Yeah, yeah. It just and and string them together. Yeah. Punctuation. Yes. Yeah, I was. For me, that was very grateful. I thought, what in the world is that? <laughs> and you're reading it this way. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they did. And, and some of those uh, vowel pointings make a difference in the... Uh, like the name of God, Yahweh. We say... We sang all those songs about Jehovah... That's because we we changed that to a J and we added. I mean, just changing it to English and we then we put valve. They they took different things like Adonai. They take other words and they'd var, borrow the vowels and stick them in between those letters. That was a shot, but the Yahweh one is probably closer to to the original and. Follows the idea of of uh, it is I am that that whole idea of and, and he's breathing life and it's the whole Yahweh is supposed to express the, <laughs> that whole thing is happening there. But I like the Jehovah songs. <laughs> I'm used to, or at least I'm used to them. But yeah, it didn't have it didn't have all of that. And a bunch of the Greek ones, they use all capital letters. And, and that's not true in all Greek, but some of the Bibles are translated totally capitalized Greek words. I mean, capitalized, not just the, the, the whole, everything is in capital letters altogether. Again, not broken up. Yeah, or, you know, here's a comma, and here's, and you go, oh my gosh. So they're guessing when they put those in there. So sometimes, when you're reading that, and, and you go, see, it has... It, it's highly emphasized right here, and you go, mm, maybe not. Now, when it has things like truly, truly, verily, verily, if you go back to King James, then you get, oh, that's how they did that. Or they, in the couplet, they'll have one line, and the next one echoes in some fashion, that first line. That couplet is emphasizing that truth. 
That double word is emphasizing that truth. They didn't do bold highlights, uh, exclamation points. They didn't have that. So they had a different method of making those holy, holy, holy. And so you go, whoa, okay. But when those guys read that, they, they got it. We need all the extra stuff because that's what we, we're used to. And I'm certainly grateful somebody's gone through it. But the reason I'm telling you, watch for it. I'm glad you brought that up because it, 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 it can throw you. And you think, well, it's got that right there. Or that's where the comma is. Or that's the end of that chapter. So that's the complete thought. No. Malcolm decided to put chapter 39 there and stop it. And then put in 40 because that was enough verses for a chapter. Do they always break at the right place? No, you better read on or see if, if those thoughts are continuing. Sometimes they are perfect, and sometimes they're just like, what were they thinking? But if you feel like this is, this is an untouchable book because of those breaks, you don't want to go, I don't want to, I can't question that. It's better to go, ah. No, that thought continues. Yeah. And verses were later than that. Did you say when? When did they break them in the chapter? Oh, that's yeah, medieval, mid, later mid. Yeah, then they, yeah, and then add numbers to it and the whole, yeah, yeah. It, it's been a long process to get it here, but it's sure easier, isn't it? If you kind of get a chapter and a verse and you can go, ah, that's, yeah, but that didn't come down from Mount Sinai. It's, it's been a long time coming. But all of it's trustworthy and the truths are there. So that, that part of it's awesome. Well, I don't want to wear you guys out. You probably need a Sunday nap, don't you, after all that dessert people brought? So thanks for uh, making the meal and sharing with us. It's been good. Uh, how about we pray and we'll just take off. Father, thank you for loving us, for watching over us, for, uh, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for staying with us, not giving up on us. And we look forward to your coming back. And uh, Lord, bless each and every one here. Wrap your arms around them with your love. Fill them the overflowing. In Jesus' name, amen.